0: So, um, today uh, we're, we're taking a, a quick break um, from the book of Luke. You know, Pastor Michael, he had a small procedure this week, and so we're taking a one-week pause on Luke, and today we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, uh, where we are looking at the foundation of our faith, the power of the gospel. So if you will, uh, open up with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. So, Tim, Tim Keller has written, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? You know, if Jesus really defeated death, then every claim that he made was true. But if Jesus did not defeat death, then every claim that he ever made was false. You know, there's there's no in-between. And the resurrection is crucial for our faith. And the resurrection, it tells us something very sharp, very hard. You know, if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, a real historical event, then it should change everything. It should, it should give us both joy and hope. You know, it changes the way we view ourselves, our world, our neighbors, creation, God, and history. It changes everything. But if Jesus did not bodily raise from the grave, then Christianity doesn't have anything to say. If if that didn't happen, then we don't have hope. We wouldn't have joy. We wouldn't have enthusiasm or inspiration. We wouldn't have anything. What we are going to see in this passage is that the gospel is historical. You know, that these were these are real events that really happened in history. We're going to see that the gospel is central to our theology, and we're going to see that the gospel is personal. And being that we aren't walking through all of 1 Corinthians today, I do want to give just a a brief background to settle us in on our passage, you know, before we read it this morning. You know, in this letter, Paul is dealing with several issues that are going on in the Corinthian church. And while uh, that letter covers many topics, one theme emerges as Paul's dominant concern. Paul wants his church that's divided because of the, uh, of the arrogance of its more powerful members to work together for the advancement of the gospel. He wants them to drop their divisive one-upmanship, build up the faith of those who are weak, and witness effectively to unbelievers. You know, one of the issues that the Corinthians were having was a disconnect on the resurrection. You know, many in, in that church believed that Jesus rose from the dead but they didn't believe that the followers of Jesus would rise from the dead. You know, they had this, you know, in their culture this very Greek outlook that, you know, you know, after after death was it was all spiritual. And so, you know, they were they were having trouble kind of putting the two together. And so they're like in their heads it was all the spiritual thing. And so they're like, yeah, Jesus could have raised from the dead. That can happen, but we, you know, but people people don't. You know, after Jesus came, lived and died and he rose from the grave, that's fine, but 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 we don't. You know, following our passage, Paul's going to deal with that. You know, he's going to explain that if you deny the physical and bodily resurrection of believers, then you are effectively denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If you are denying that Jesus was fully God and fully human, because you're denying his humanity if you do that, it's a big problem. You know, what we have here is a gospel issue, it's an improper understanding of the full gospel message. And You know, as I've been sharing with our youth on Wednesdays, as we've been walking through Galatians, you know, if you get most of the gospel right, but you add something to it or you subtract something from it, you don't have the gospel at all. You have a fully false gospel. You know, as we were walking through Galatians with our youth, it was they were adding works to the gospel. They added something, but because they added to it, they lost the whole thing. Here, if we subtract from it, you lose all of it. And so, in order to set the foundation for his argument about the bodily resurrection of believers, we get our passage, which establishes the gospel and the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. So, let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand... By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Dear God, as we you know, come to your word this morning, God, I pray that, that you help us to see um, you know, what you are saying through Paul um, to the Corinthians. God, help us to see what you are, are, are saying to us through this passage today. And God, I pray that, that it's not my words, but that you speak through me. God, help us to be able to see the true power of the full gospel as, as Paul presented in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. And the first thing that we, that we are going to, to see in this passage we're going to talk about is that the gospel is historical. You know, all religions and worldviews attempt to provide an answer to the age-old question of death. You know, what, what is death? Why is there death? How, how do we relate to death? You know, no matter what someone believes, death is a reality in this world. You know, if anybody, no matter what religion they, they follow or don't follow, if they come up to you and say, you know, death in this world isn't a thing, you're going you're gonna to tell them, I, I think you need to go see a doctor. Like, you're insane. We all deal with death, and the Christian gospel is not removed from this world. It doesn't seek to deny or delay or embrace death. Rather, it confronts death head-on in the middle of history. You know, the gospel is not simply an idea or a principle or perspective. It's news. It's news that happened in history, news that revolves around a person. And the gospel centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see this uh, in several pieces that make up the gospel. You know, the first piece is the Incarnation. And, you know, while this text does not explicitly address the Incarnation, you know, it implicitly assumes it. Everything that, that Paul says assumes the incarnation happened. And we, of course, have that elsewhere in Scripture, as we see uh, in John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel declares that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to carry out His plan of redemption. The second gospel piece we see is the life of Jesus. You know, this text does not specifically mention the life of Christ. It doesn't say, and and when I say that, I mean it doesn't say, you know, Jesus, who was a historical person. But it absolutely assumes this when it's talking about Jesus and what he did. You know, if Jesus was to do this, you know, you have to assume uh, the person of Jesus did this. But one thing that's amazing here is that even Christianity's radical opponents defend that Jesus was a historical person. You know, they disagree on, on really who he was, but there's no denying that there was a historical Jesus that did things that, you know, people couldn't explain. And to give an ancient non-Christian example Reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome in the year 64, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, (coughs) Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And, you know, we have more ancient sources. If we had more time, we could go through those. But, you know, it's always interesting to see that these, this is somebody way back then that did not believe that Jesus was who He said He was, that still could not deny that, that there was a historic person named Jesus that was put to death by Pontius Pilate. You know, where we pick up in this passage, we see, though, That the gospel doesn't just say there was a person named Jesus and he was put to death and that's it. The gospel claims that Christ did a lot more than simply exist. He lived a a life of perfect obedience to God's law. And he met the demands that individuals never could. And it brings us to the third gospel piece. And you see we have, you know, the incarnation, we have his life. And as we see in verse 3 in our passage today, we have his death. This is where our, this text picks up the narrative. Is verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We see that Christ died, and he died for a purpose. He died for our sins. He had no sins of his own to die for. But the wages of our sin was Jesus' death. He died in order that individual sinners might be reconciled to God. And this happened in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, here Paul may be thinking especially of Isaiah 53, uh, 3 through 12, which describes the substitutionary death and vindication after death of God's servant. And maybe he's also speaking of other Old Testament passages like Hosea 6-2 or Jonah 1:17 or 2-1, because or maybe he's, you know, talking about just the Old Testament in general, pointing to Christ. <clears throat> you know, when I was in seminary, I was taking my Old Testament class, and I had a professor whose name was Dr. McKenzie. And he said something. We were in one of those hybrid classes, so it was online for the most part, and then you'd go for over two days, you'd take 18 hours of class. It was a lot of fun on those weekends. But Dr. McKenzie said something that, like, you know, I knew... But I hadn't really like thought about it in that perspective until he said it. And you know, he said, you know, in the Old Testament, like when Paul's talking about according to the scriptures, you know, he's not talking about this full Bible, Old Testament and New Testament that we have today, where it's so clear where the Gospels are talking. Paul's talking about the Old Testament. You know, we have a full gospel presentation within the Old Testament, and it's like, I've like known this, but it finally clicked, and I was like, that's remarkable. And then he's like walking us through all these passages where we see this, where we have in the Old Testament a full gospel presentation. You know, it's not like Jesus came and was like, you know what, you guys can't do this. Change of plans because the first plan failed, so I'm just going to come and die, and now we have this. It's like, no. The entirety of Scripture was pointing to the gospel, and we have that. We have a full gospel presentation in the Old Testament. And Dr. McKenzie told me that, and it like, I, I knew it, and it clicked, and it blew my mind. And I haven't stopped thinking about it since because it's true. And we see Jesus even say in Luke twenty four twenty five through 27, and he said to them, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. You know, Christ's death was according to God's redemptive plan. It was in line with what had been foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. And we move from his death to to verse 4. The Gospel piece 4 is his burial. Verse 4 tells us he was buried. Christ's death was no mere illusion because his body was treated like any other corpse by the Roman officials and by his friends who grieved the loss of his life. From his burial, we see the second half of verse 4, his resurrection. Verse 4 tells us he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. A human being in history on a particular day was raised from the dead. And that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, argues that the historical nature of the gospel hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection had to happen or else we don't have the full gospel. The resurrection would have been just as unbelievable to a first-century person as it would be to, you know, someone in today's day and age. You know, it's… many, many people simply dismiss the idea of the resurrection as ahistorical because this is something that doesn't happen in our world. But in order to do that, you know, four clear historical realities would have to be erased… You know, the first is the burial of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus, you know, in a personal tomb, and that tomb was guarded by Roman guards. It was a known location. It could be checked. Historical reality number two is the empty tomb. You know, the tomb was empty. You know, it it was either by, you know, resurrection or by some other explanation, but There was an empty tomb. It was a fact. And the tomb of Jesus was found empty by a group of his female followers. You know, this is a big deal because in first century Palestinian court, a woman's testimony wasn't given any value whatsoever. And so in that day, in that time, if this was a fake, I mean, these witnesses would have made no sense in that time in culture. I mean, if you're going to make, if you're going to lie about something, you make it believable. You do. You know, if you're, you're you you know, do your research. I don't know. Be like you know, kind of be able to take the temperature of the room and be like, all right, I'm gonna if I'm gonna lie about this, I'm gonna be like, what's gonna make it the most believable? You know, if the disciples were lying about the resurrection. They they went in all the wrong ways to lie about it. You know, historical reality number three as we come with it. We have the burial of Jesus. We have the empty tomb. Then we have the post-resurrection appearances. We see in, here in our passage in verses 4 through 8, Jesus appeared to all the leaders of the early church, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to Paul, he appeared to all the apostles. If he only appeared to them, then I suppose you could say, you know, maybe, maybe doubt the, the veracity of these sightings a little bit. It's like, well, he only, re- he only appeared to this really small group of the people closest to him But Paul then appeals to a crowd of more than 500 brothers, and it's not like, oh, Jesus also appeared to these 500 people. They're all dead, though, so you can't ask them. You know, at the time, you know, most at the time he wrote, most of them were still alive. They could have confirmed or denied Paul's claim. 500 rational people who did not have a category in their heads for seeing a person raised from the dead, because, again, that's not something that generally happens, claimed to see the risen Jesus. The claim itself is a historical reality. And then we have historical reality number four, the reaction of the early disciples. You know, the early disciples would have had every reason to not believe in the resurrection of Jesus unless He had actually been raised. You put yourselves in their shoes. Their leader was dead. Their leader was condemned as a heretic, condemned as, as a false teacher, He was put to death in the most brutal and embarrassing way that they had. Nevertheless, they were prepared to die over their belief in the resurrection of Christ. You know, it it wasn't like they they had this thing, and if if we lie about it, we're going to have all this prestige and power. What was going to happen is most of them were going to die for their beliefs. That's generally not something that you lie about for, for no good reason. And to the outside world, there would have been no benefit to their believing in the resurrection, but they chose to defend this claim at all costs, and it did cost them. These four realities, they have to be explained. The burial, the empty tomb, the appearances, and the reaction of the disciples. To deny the resurrection, if you wanted to do that, then you need an answer to why was there an empty tomb why was there an established burial, why were there eyewitness accounts, and why was there the emergence of the early church? And in light of the answers that we do have to those questions, we can be confident in the real historical resurrection. You know, the gospel is historical. It takes place in real time and space, and it has implications for every human life. You know, where we see from where the gospel is historical— we move on to where we see Paul talk about in verses 1 through 4. The gospel is central to our theology. And here is the flow of Paul's logic the gospel is news that must be communicated because it's something that Paul himself received. He heard it. It's news that Paul preached and delivered because the gospel is news that breaks into a hearer's world, it is received. The reception of the gospel is part of a Christian's past, but it's also a reality that has ongoing present importance. The gospel is doing a present work, uh, you know, present saving work in our lives. It's a power that continues to have future significance in our lives, and therefore the Corinthians must hold fast to the gospel. You know, a lot of times we can fall into a few mistakes about gospel centrality. You know, one is that the gospel is something that happened in our past, and now it's time to move on to deeper things. Like, we, we heard the gospel, we accepted it, we began our Christian lives, now we're growing, so we leave the gospel over here, and we keep moving forward. The other thing we can get into is that we believe that the gospel, you know, we always have that the gospel was something before, but then it's like, well, in times of crisis, in times of difficulty, I come back to the gospel, it gets me grounded, and then I go off and do my own thing again. But the gospel is mainly the thing that happened before, but then it, it comes and goes sometimes when I need it. And then the last thing, the, the last mistake that we can make is that the gospel is a future thing. I was saved. I accepted the gospel. Now I go and live my life and, you know, go kind of away from the gospel. And then when I die, the gospel comes back into importance again because, you know, I want to go to heaven. But the gospel is intended to be part of the past, present, and future reality of a Christian salvation experience. It's not just one of those three. When we are saved, our past is settled. Resurrection is a reward because of the work of Christ. Our present is secure. The resources of the gospel are sufficient to meet all of the challenges that we face. Our future is certain. You know, Christ has done the work for us, the resurrection being clear evidence of Christ's death-conquering work on our behalf. You know, the gospel encompasses past, present, and future. It's intended to be the central power around which our life revolves. And it's why I'm sure at this point, now that I've been here over two years, you have all heard me say, especially if you're in the youth or the young adults, you're like, David, you say this all the time, it's important that we remind ourselves of the gospel regularly. And I say it all the time because it is so easy to neglect that in our lives. Life's busy. We have a lot going on. And if you're like me, a lot of times my reaction when, when trouble comes my way, when, when difficult things happen, is almost like a panic and trying to just do it all on my, on my own before I realize it's foolishness and then reminding myself of the gospel and then going to the Lord. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel regularly because it should drive our lives. You know, it's what we hold on to for support. You know, if if you've ever uh, ridden on, like, the metro in D.C., I've done this. I've taken a few youth group uh, mission trips to work with a church planter friend that I have over in in D.C., and you know, when you do that, you know, you ride on the metro. And if you have a group of middle schoolers and high schoolers, what you have, you know, you have that bar. Because it gets crowded. There's not always a seat. And especially, you know, middle schoolers always want to hold on to that bar. And they're always like, I'm going to hold on it. And then the train starts to stop. And then they let go and try to see if they can stand it. They can't. Okay, and so what happens is they're, they're, they're holding on to that support. They let go of the support. The train stops. They go flying, and then I have to yell at them. That's life in youth ministry. It's, it's, it's the reality. But I talk about that because Christians have been giving something that we can hold fast to, you know, that, that, that we can have that security that will see us through life's, you know, uncertainties. Yet we often are tempted to try to balance ourselves, like my youth on the train, or to take hold of alternate stabilizers that actually offer no stability at all. The gospel gives us stability. We can hold on to it. It's central to our theology. You know, we are sinners. We were lost and in need of a Savior. That Savior is Jesus, fully God, fully man, who lived the perfect life we never could, who died the death that we deserved, Who took on the wrath of God and who raised from the dead. And every piece of that gospel is important. When Jesus died, if he did not rise, then everyone would still be dead in their sins because death would still be owed to us. Death would still have authority over human lives. And this is the reason why Jesus' resurrection from the dead is essentially telling the believer that a payment for sin has been made, the debt has been paid. Christians have overcome sin, and sin will no longer have power and authority over them. Our sins have been paid for in full. The resurrection of new life has already begun in us when we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. And so the gospel is unmistakably unmistakably historical, and it is necessarily central. But lastly, it's personal. And we see in verses 8 through 11 that the gospel is personal. Paul speaks about the gospel as something that he's experienced, something that ought to be having an effect on the Corinthian believers in their lives. It's not merely an idea or an institutional religion. It's not even a way at looking, of looking at the world. It's historical news with an ultimate impact. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He shares that in this passage. You know, it, it's like, I was, I was a persecutor of the church. If you want to ha- find someone that is utterly unworthy to be a recipient of God's favor and grace, Paul's saying, you're looking at him. But ironically, this is precisely what he is given in Jesus, God's favor and grace. Jesus made a personal appearance to him, and Paul recognizes his unworthiness. He even calls himself the least of the apostles. It's ultimately the free grace of God that makes Paul what he is. The gospel decenters unbelievers from the center of our own life. We recognize our unworthiness. We recognize also what we are by God's grace. And so the gospel is now a functional identity. Without effort or work, Christians are put in perfect relationship with God and experience all the benefits of a union with Christ. His incarnation means that he always meets everyone where he or she is. His perfect life means that Christians are perfectly accepted by God, regardless of our ability to be righteous. This isn't a works-based faith. His substitutionary death means that Christians no longer need to fear punishment for their sins, because he has borne the full penalty. His burial means that his death on one's behalf was no mirage and that someone has gone to face the consequences to replace death. And his resurrection means that death has been defeated, that it has been stripped of its power and its sting. And Christians will ultimately be raised again to new life because of our union with the resurrected Christ. The result of this free and full grace that Christians live, is that Christians live their lives to the full. Verse 10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God does not create laziness. It works in individuals to lead us towards deeper engagement. You know, Jesus' incarnation leads individuals to put others before themselves. You know We experience God's grace, and from there we show the grace of God to others. Jesus' life and teaching lead us to live lives of compelling, sacrificial love. His death enables us to live free from the guilt of sin and to be certain of God's acceptance and approval rather than trying to wash ourselves from guilt or, or earn the approval of others we are free to live in light of god's full acceptance and a cleansed conscience his resurrection you know it, it enables us to be fearless in the face of death to live our lives for him boldly the ultimate enemy has been defeated and so all of the other minor enemies are stripped of their power we're enabled to work harder not, not because you know, for, for gain or for building identity or security. It's not because, you know, if we, we need to work harder so that we can gain salvation, because it's not works-based. You know, Christians already have an identity in Christ. We already have security in Christ, and we don't even work from our own power. It is it's from the grace of God that is with us. You know, it's incredible to see this historic event of the gospel you know, which is in accordance to the Old Testament Scriptures, and it is, it is central to our faith. But on top of all of that, it's also personal. Believing the gospel, trusting Christ as our Savior, it saves us, and it transforms us. We are made new. You know, it's incredible. It's, it's quite literally the good news. But so we see all of that in, in this passage— And the gospel is historical, that the gospel is central, that the gospel is personal. So, how how does being gospel-centered play out in our lives? How does it apply to us directly? You know, what does it look like for us at Seaford? Well, one thing it looks like is unity. You know, the church at Corinth was in need of unity. They were divided over several things. They needed unity, and they needed unity in the gospel. Because it's really important that our unity is on the gospel specifically. Because a lot of people are united about a lot of different things. Most of them not good. You know, we look at cults. Cults are unified. They're unified in really wrong things. And so if we as Seaford were just unified, that's not necessarily good. We need to be unified on the gospel. The gospel needs to be Central. You know, I said before, if you add, if you have most of the gospel, but you add or subtract a part, you lose the whole thing. And looking back at the Old Testament, if you kept all of the law, but one part, you fall in all of it. You fail in all of it. And so, we need to be unified together on the entirety of the gospel. You know, in one way, you know, one thing that happens is that helps us with our outreach, of course. As we're unified, our, our community sees that. It's pretty obvious if we are unified or not when it comes to our outreach, but it also helps us to stay grounded. It helps us to to stay firm in our foundation because we are unified in that together. We are pushing for that together. We are growing in that together because disunity spreads. The Corinthians didn't have the gospel at the front, and they slipped in areas. They became divided. They had issues of sexual immorality, social snobbery, issues of marriage and divorce, issues of participation in pagan religions, uh, issues with order within corporate worship, and even issues within, with the bodily resurrection of Christians. You see all these issues. You say, how does this happen? It happens when we make our foundation on something other than the gospel. But when we are united in the gospel, then the gospel is going to drive everything that we do. So we need to be unified in the gospel. And when we are really united in the gospel— what it looks like is, you know, one, gospel-centered teaching and also gospel-centered outreach, you know, to give a couple of quick applications. You know, teaching the gospel in what what we teach and then sharing it in what we do. You know, one of the the great examples of doing that um, is with Upwork. I mean, you look at that, and, you know, we didn't just say, you know there's not really a great basketball program we need to have a great basketball program and that is the mission that is that's the primary focus here we wanted to reach our communities with the gospel and so when we have upward and we're able to have that you know we do put forth a great a great basketball product and we are sharing the gospel at every practice and we are sharing the gospel at at every game so the parents are hearing the gospel regularly the the players are hearing the gospel regularly and also You see church unity because, I mean, how many volunteers come together to put forth that amazing product that is Upward at Seaford? That's noticed. People notice that. I mean, I see the comments every year, so I can promise you people notice that. And so with that, what, what that looks like also, you know, that's biblical community coming together. We talk about that all the time. You know, we're it's us understanding the grace that we receive in Christ, understanding that we are saved. We want to grow, and we grow together. When we have unity in the gospel, leading us in biblical community, we grow together. We grow in our congregational worship. You we know, what we are here doing today, Sunday mornings. We grow uh, with our small groups. We grow in our Bible studies, and as that happens, accountability flows you know, we're building meaningful relationships. And I know I've been talking about this for the last few weeks uh, with our young adult groups and and our small group sessions. But, you know, if we want to actually have true biblical accountability, have our Christian brothers and sisters lifting us up, pointing us to Jesus, and if we're going, if we're starting down something that's like, hey, maybe that's not right, or we're misunderstanding something in Scripture, and we want to lovingly correct and help each other to grow, if you don't have a real relationship with each other, it's going to come off very negatively, It's not going to come out. It's going to look bad. It's like, well, you don't care about me. Why do you care about this? If you have true biblical community, you really are growing together. Accountability is going to flow, and it's going to be received a lot more lovingly because you've proven time and time again you do care for each other. That happens as we grow unified on the gospel together. And then finally, outreach spreads because our hearts are broken for the lost and we grow in our understanding of our salvation. We're reminding ourselves regularly of the gospel, who we were without Jesus and who we are with him. And from there, the gospel is shared as we come together to share it. You know, at Easter, the resurrection is at the center of a story that God has placed at the center of history. And that, we are here reminded, is the only thing that can really carry the weight of being at the center of our lives. The gospel is historical. It makes the most sense of the facts. This is a thing that really happened in history. The gospel is central. It's the very heart of Christianity, and the gospel is personal. It is news that must be reckoned with at the heart level. Christianity doesn't just emphasize the objective historical reality, but also talks about the personal nature of its truth. God takes the truth, the historical truth of the resurrection, and He burns it deep into human hearts, So that the gospel will be received and the personal implications will be recognized. And as we grow in that, unified as a body of believers, the result will be that we live that out. And as we live that out, we not only grow personally and grow together, but fruit comes from that as well. The good news of the gospel is spread, and our example backs up the truth of the gospel in our lives. And souls are saved. And lives are transformed as Christ works in us. You know, this morning, you know, we've, we've really taken a deep dive directly on the gospel. And so at this time, you know, we're going to pray and, and we're going to worship our Savior. And so as we do that, you know, if you have, have not confessed Jesus as Lord and you would like to today, you know, let me encourage you, you know, don't wait. Let today be the day of salvation. Don't go another day without knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you would like to do that and and put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, or, you know, if you're just like, you know, I I have some questions, I would like to talk about that. You know, come find me. Come find me after the service. Or, you know, if you're with us on on our live stream, email us at info at seafordbaptist.com. But we would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. God again, we thank you so much. Just for the opportunity to be able to be here God to be in your word. God we thank you um, that, that we have, you know these, these passages like here in 1 Corinthians where, where Paul just you know, takes us through the gospel and walks us through the gospel. God, just as the, the church in Corinth here needed to remember the gospel, we are all in need of remembering the gospel. It's easy. to to lose sight of that in our daily lives as we get busy, as we have things going on. God, we pray that you help us to hold fast to the gospel, hold on to the security the gospel provides, and help that to drive our lives. God, help us to grow together always because unity is not something that we reach and it's like, all right, we've gained unity and we don't have to work on it anymore. God, help us to always be growing more and more unified and unified in the right thing, unified in the gospel. Help that to transform our lives, and help us as we share that in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.